You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 44 of the Common Descent Podcast. We're back. We're back again. And we are here with a cool topic of hybridization. Ooh. Yes. This topic is actually requested by Darcy on Twitter, and it is an interesting topic. This is this is one of the odder ones to cover that we've done so far just because it's it it covers a lot actually. There's a lot that's mixed in with this. Basically, hybridization is when you get two different kinds of animals, species or subspecies or breeds, and they make a baby. Yep. Animal or organism. And there's a lot that goes into that. We're going to cover today what it is, you know, what what actually goes into it and what causes it, and also how animals try to avoid it, because that is a big part of a lot of animals' life goals. And then we're going to go through kind of what can happen when it does happen. What are all the results that you can kind of get? Lots of cool examples to give, lots of weird stuff to talk about. But before we get to that, we have announcements, as usual. The announcements get longer and longer every time. Yes, uh, <laughs> they are. Eventually, we'll have just announcement episodes. Yes. And here's what we're doing today. <laughs> For the beginning of our announcements, as many of you who've been listening already know, when we get patrons of a certain level, we shout them out on the podcast. And we have two of those to do today. So welcome, Brooke and Julie, to the yes. Patreon family. Welcome. Thank you so much, as always, Thank you. to our patrons. Absolutely. Also, we have a couple of cool things coming up. A quick one, small one, is I actually got to guest uh, star, guest podcast, on my friend Lucas's podcast, The Science of Pokemon, cool the other day. Stuff. Yeah, we recorded it just this week. So it's it probably will be coming out just about a day after this episode releases. So probably Monday the 24th or so, or close to that. Nice. Uh, but we'll put a link up to that. Absolutely, we will. And it, it's basically, we discussed fossil Pokemon and just, it was a, a quick discussion and just went through some of the cool things about it. So feel free to give that a listen if you're interested. But our Big news right now, and this is actually a weird one because we will have already done this by the time you're listening to this. Yes. <laughs> we will actually probably be flying back from this by the time you're listening to this. We are going to be visiting the St. Louis Science Center for their SciFest Rock, Fossil, and Quake. And basically, we're going to be trying to cover that event. We're going to be doing some interviews and giving you guys a look at what's going on there and what cool stuff they were doing. Yeah, there's going to be a bunch of paleontologists there yes. talking about their research. We were actually invited to this event, which is really exciting. Oh, it's so cool. By Dr. Ashley Moorhart, who has, whose voice has been on this podcast before, actually, yes. back in the, the diversity bonus episode. And then after, while we're there, we'll take pictures and stuff, but mm -hmm. afterwards, keep an ear out for follow-up episodes, a bonus episode uh, with audio from the event. Yes, yeah, so right now, it, we, we cannot yet tell you what to expect because we have not done it yet, so. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so but if you, you are in St. Louis, Missouri, 
and you are would be interested in hanging out at SciFest. Uh, yes, Louis absolutely. Science Center. Come on by. Say hi to us. It sounds like it's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, but okay, that is that wraps up our our announcements. So uh, barely any announcements today, right? It's, we've we're cutting it down. We're trimming. We're trimming the fat. Although we should remind people, since this will be the last episode that comes out in Ooh, September, you're very very correct that we will be continue. You know, this will come out right before the last installment in our Spotlight series. Yes, it will. Five out of five will come out the last Saturday of the month. So if you've enjoyed our chats with invertebrate paleontologists, let us know. And to yes. keep an eye out for our Meg episode, which is totally coming up oh, very soon. Right around the corner. And <laughs> the shark, shark is coming. The shark is coming. <laughs> and in October, we will be releasing a special series called Spooculative Evolution. The Mermaid Speculative Evolution, but we digress episode was a huge hit. And one of our patrons suggested that we do a spooky series of speculative evolution episodes through the month of October. And how could we possibly say no to that? So we'll be picking some movie monsters and discussing them very much the same way we did the mermaid. And as is tradition, we will be doing it every Saturday in the month. So there will be four episodes throughout October. And then we're going to stop doing series for the year, I think. Yeah, we're <laughs> going we're gonna to take it easy until the, the new year after October rounds out. Because it's it's been fun, but woo, I need sleep. Yes, yes. But give us let us know what you think of all these wacky side series we're doing. If you like them, yes. we'll do more. Absolutely. And with that, I believe we are brought to... The news section. News. As always, we like to start our episodes after the announcements with a review of some of the more recent science news that's been going on out there to keep us up to date, keep you up to date, and uh, let us all be privy to what scientists are doing. And I'm this time, as is so unusual when one of us is leading an episode, I'm going to let David start it this time. Oh, well, yeah. Let me let me get my notes together. Right. Hey, Mix you want up. to talk about saber tooth cat footprints? Well, okay. This is a study by Federico Agnolin et al. in a journal called Ichnos. What a cool name for a journal! That's right? a good That's a name. Cool name. Wow. Ooh, cool. And we'll link to an article uh, in Atlas Obscura by Matthew Taub. It's a short article, so I'll see if I can link the paper as well. We have spoken on the podcast previously in the past uh, about. Ichnology. Ichnology is the study of trace fossils. Footprints, burrows, Molds. feeding traces on shells, which is a reference that no one will get until a week after this podcast comes out. <laughs> Hence the name of the journal, Ichnos, a journal for ichnological studies. As it turns out, Ichnology, sites that have footprints and trace fossils from the Pleistocene epoch, are rare in South America. And among those, the, some of the rarest are tracks of carnivores. This study reports on a new site near Miramar in Argentina that has preserved some footprints, specifically the left front foot and the left back foot, two of each, of a large cat. Interesting. These are <laughs> large footprints. They are about 17 <laughs> centimeters wide by about 19 centimeters long. 
And Ooh. to put that into perspective, these are larger than any living species and the largest known felid footprints, apparently. Wow. So a beefy cat. Now, when we discover trace fossils, and we've talked about this before, it is not really possible almost ever to say this trace was made by this species. Yeah. So instead of naming the trace by with the name of the species we think it came from, we gave the, we give the trace its own name, an ichno species. Yes. This trace belongs to an ichno genus called Philippita, which means catfoot. That's a good name. And this is a brand new species, a new ichno species, Miramarensis, which means from Miramar, near the place where it was found. And the authors suspect that the maker of this track was none other than Smilodon, the famous American saber-toothed cat. This is, you think the La Brea Tarpits, think pretty much any saber-toothed cat you've ever seen in artwork. Yeah. That's Smilodon. The big teeth sticking out of the mouth. Yes. Partially, they think it's Smilodon because it's similar in shape to other footprints that have been linked to other saber-toothed cats. Cat footprints are not super common in the fossil record. There are a bunch known from America and Europe, for example, that have been linked to Panthera and Puma, which are both living large cat genera. There are two examples, one in Mexico and one in Spain, that have been thought to belong to saber-toothed cats, cats of the subfamily Macarodontinae. This set of tracks that these scientists just found appears most similar to those, to saber-tooth tracks. And they describe that the track shape matches, at least somewhat, Smilodon's foot structure, which we know oh, from interesting. its bones. Yeah. yeah, which is pretty cool. And we know Smilodon should have been down in that area, so it, it's a good match for Smilodon the saber-tooth cat. It's a, if the footprint fits. Exactly. <laughs> there are a couple of cool inferences that they were able to make from these tracks. One that I thought was really interesting, most cats that we're familiar with today are digitigrade, which means they kind of stand on their toes. Yes. And if you look at your cat or your dog's foot, they're, they're digitigrade. These footprints appear to be more plantigrade, which is to say the heel is down on the ground, which is how we stand. Yeah, like us, bears, things like that, flat foot. Yep, raccoons do that, which suggests, so, so these feet appear to have been at least partially more plantigrade, more heel down toward the ground, which might be, uh, the authors suggest, is an adaptation for running, for cursoriality. Oh, hmm. yeah. It also, the fact that the forefeet are bigger and beefier than the hind feet, relatively, matches the fact that sab uh, saber-toothed cats like Smilodon are known to have big, beefy wrestler arms. Yes. For probably ambushing and tackling their prey to the ground. And my favorite bit, it's a very small note, but it's my favorite part. There are no claw marks associated I was wondering. with these feet. Yep. Which I was suggests that, like modern-day cats, these the the saber-toothed cat, if this is in fact what that is, had retractable claws. I love little notes like that because it, it allows you to have those moments of this means that if 
Smilodon stretched out, if this is Smilodon, stretched out and yawned, it would be able to expose the claws just like a house cat does. Yeah, it would spread out its little toesies, and then the claws would come out, except they'd be like the size of your mouth. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) they they would be this this nice size of a butter knife. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool. Footprint fossils are some of the the most interesting to me when it comes to ichnofossils because they tell you so much about the behavior, but because they are an ichnofossil, you can't truly apply it to a species for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's it tells you a lot, but you also have to be conservative in that now you can know a lot about the potential behavior of this animal that you're pretty sure is Smilodon. But just because the footprint matches doesn't mean it definitely was that animal. We don't have the furry paw. So Yeah. Yeah. It's a ton of information, great information that you can only get so close to assigning yes. to a particular extinct species. Which uh, that to me uh, that that's such a, a cool dichotomy and, and balance. It's a fascinating field mm-hmm. of science. Very nice. I like it. As do I. My first news goes back a bit farther, just scooching back the time to the Cambrian explosion. Oh, just a little bit farther just, back. Just a little bit. Nothing just, to... Just an extra 540 million yeah, years. Yeah, nothing to stress about. So my first news deals with the fact that a, not a new discovery, but a new assigned species, because this has been discovered a while ago, of Cambrian arthropod seems to be a filter feeding arthropod reveals potential clues on some shifts that happened in the food chain and ecosystem sometime around the Cambrian explosion and has been that way since and may have been one of the potential partial causes for the explosion itself. There's a, there's a lot that needs to be unpacked, but there's a lot of cool stuff. Interesting. And a reminder for our listeners, the Cambrian explosion was the big radiation of diversity event that happened at the beginning of the Cambrian period that set the stage for all the ecosystems we know of today. And if you want more, go listen to episode nine of this very podcast. Absolutely. And we'll get into a little more details about the backdrop. But first, the research we're looking at is by Rudy LaRossi Abril and Stephen Pates and is published in Nature Communications. The press release we'll be linking you to is from the University of Oxford and phys.org. So as David was saying, the Cambrian explosion 540 to 500 million years ago has been greatly debated as to why it happened. Mm -hmm. What caused this sudden diversification? There's a lot of potentials, ecological ones and environmental ones, things that changed with the animals, things that changed with the habitats and environment it is very likely a combination of many of these but one of the things that changed somewhere during this time that was not the case before and has been the case since is that there was a connection made between the pelagic and benthic zones when it comes to the movement of nutrients and food what all those words mean (laughs) (laughs) pelagic is a term that means open water Toward yeah. the top of the water. Swimmy plankton. things. Yes, swimmy things. Plankton. Whales are pelagic, or most whales. Pelagic. And they are swimming out in the open water, often toward the surface, because this is where the bulk of photosynthesis happens mm-hmm. in the ocean. 
when you're near the sun. So plankton, you know, phytoplankton, etc., etc. The benthic zone is, you might have guessed it, the opposite of that, the bottom. Benthic for bottom. So this is the sandy floor, the just a few feet off the surface of the seabed. Yeah, crabs and clams yes. and shrimp and things like that. All of those things scuttling around. Now, during this time, photosynthesis was taking place at the top. So your producers, for all you who remember your food web lessons way back when, producers are the <laughs> ones who are at the bottom of the food chain, are all at the top making food from sun. But they're so small that when they die, they really just get recycled back into that top level because they're not heavy enough to sink all the way to the bottom. They get eaten before they ever make it down, and they just get returned right back up to the top in the nutrient cycle. So it's separate, while the bottom, where the vast majority of the life forms that are we see diversified during this time are occupying, are cut off from all that lovely food being produced. Hmm. At some point, this became connected, and all of that extra energy up top came down and fueled, in part, the diversification and evolution of all these new critters is at least one hypothesis as to one of the potential causes for this explosion. There's a lot that could go into that that right, is being right. talked about that could go into it. But this is one of those things that changed at this time and could very well be a cause for the explosion. So now you have the backdrop. <laughs> I told you that story so I could tell you this story. So I could tell you this story, which will lead to the next story. <laughs> in, the, in the 1970s and 80s, a series of fossils were discovered in Utah by amateur fossil hunters, Bob Harris and the Gunther family. Uh, were two of these fossil hunters, and they found Cambrian fossils that they donated, very luckily, to Kansas University and the Kansas University Museum of Invertebrate Paleontology, the KUMIP. These fossils were described for the first time in this research that we're talking about today. So it's actually cool. It's been over 25 years since these fossils were brought out, but now are finally being discovered, and they discovered something cool. As the press release describes it, after 20 hours of prep using a needle to excavate the fossil while it was submerged in water, oh. <laughs> yes, oh. they revealed a radiodont, which is the same group that includes Anomalocaris, the big predatory. Ooh, the monster shrimp. The monster shrimp that was very likely the dom one of the dominant predators during the Cambrian. This is Pavantia hastasta which is a much smaller species of radiodont, but also has long filament-covered appendages that they believe were used for filtration. Oh. So this was a smaller filter-feeding radiodont swimming around the Cambrian, about 25 centimeters long, 10 inches. So not big, but bigger than all the other planktonic predators. Yeah, big for then. Big for then, and by far would have been one of the biggest things feeding on plankton, which means that if this thing was skimming plankton at the surface, where all it, most of the plankton would have been found, it now has a way to transport that nutrients to the bottom through its poop and its death. Yeah. As the bodies, as the bodies of these animals fall from after dying to the bottom, you'll have little, little pavantia falls. Yeah, little radiodont falls. Little radiodont falls. And then... As they poop, they will also transport it down. And this, things like this, shifts like this may have been one of the things that started to connect the benthic and pelagic zones. Very cool. Which is neat. I like it. I, it is fascinating. Now, as we said, it's kind of difficult to think of a 10 inch long creature as 
huge. Yep. And it certainly wouldn't have been the biggest thing around. Anomala Cars itself was ridiculous. Yeah. It was about twice that size, I believe. Mm-hmm. But this is, for that time period, that's a major, you know, that's a good-sized creature. I love that there is this trend in evolutionary history of very large creatures filter feeding through the pelagic zone. Yes. Like, this was the whale of the Cambrian. Which is it so would, cool that that's a trend through the ocean. It would filter feed through the planktonic seas, die, sink to the bottom, and provide tons of nutrients for all the little things down there, just like whales do today. It's awesome. And it looks super cute in the reconstruction of the paleo art. So yes. look for that in the link. <laughs> yes. As always, we'll put these on the blog. Definitely. My next news piece is not a discovery of a new fossil or anything. It's actually a little bit more technical than we normally get, but I really, it's such a cool, it's a case study. It's a thought experiment. This is a group of researchers who examined the last 12,000 years of ocean invertebrate fossils, looking at mollusks in Italy, in old sediments of the Adriatic Sea. And what they were attempting to do is examine extinction patterns over the last 12,000 years. What, what do we see patterns and timing of extinction over that time period up until the present? And they found a bunch of interesting patterns, which is super notable because all of the species they were looking at are still alive. That's cool. So uh, join me on this story. This is a study by Rafal Narot, or something close to that, et al. in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, and we'll be linking to another press release. This one didn't get a popular article either. Uh, So this will be a University of Florida press release, which you'll see in the blog post. So some background here as well, some vocabulary. There is a phenomenon in paleontology, and if you've taken a paleo class, you've probably heard of this, called the Signor Lips Effect. (laughs) It's a cool, it's a fun name. The Senior Lips Effect describes the fact that when you find the last fossil in the fossil record of an extinct species is very unlikely to be the last member of that species. Yes. Because extinction doesn't happen in a day, and our best guess at extinction in the fossil record is when the last fossil was. But if extinction is a gradual thing, and especially if extinction is dwindling the species over time, you are very unlikely to see the actual timing of when the species went extinct. You're more likely seeing an earlier representative. So this can make extinctions, be just because of the random nature of the fossil record, look more gradual than they are, especially in the case of mass extinction. Yes. There are ways to correct for this. There are models that'll say, okay, this is what we see in the record leading up to this mass extinction, but let's throw this into the model that accounts for randomness in the fossil record. Okay, it's not actually gradual. This model sort of estimates around this bias. Mm -hmm. Well, these researchers wanted to do an empirical test of those models. How good are we actually correcting for this? And so what they did, they went to the Po Plain in northeast Italy, which sits between the Alps and the Adriatic Sea. It preserves, like I said, about 12,000 years of oceanic, coastal, and marine strata. They drilled down more than 130 feet, 
back to the last glacial maximum, and they looked at over 100 species, still living species, over the course of that time. They collected more than 38,000 specimens. Jeez. Because as we've discussed in the Spotlight series, this is invertebrate paleontology. Invertebrates. And they basically said, if a mass extinction happened today, what would the fossil record look like? If the extinction happened right here at the top of this level, what would the pattern of extinction look like based on the last appearance of each species in the sequence? And what they found was, first of all, six out of the 119 species were found at the top of the course. So the extinction pattern suggests that only six of them would have gone extinct in the present, where all the rest, the other 95%, appear to be to have gone extinct earlier, and that it is not just a gradual disappearance like you would expect from the randomness predicted by the senior ellipse effect. Mm-hmm. Instead, the last occurrences, the apparent extinctions, clustered. Weird. Which we might interpret in the fossil record as pulses of extinction. Yes. That there was a bunch of extinction here and then a bunch of extinction here. The offshore taxa, quote, went extinct first. And then there were steps uh, in the extinctions of the nearshore taxa. And what they determined with a closer look was that the last occurrences, the apparent extinctions, matched with changes in the environment. I was, yeah. As your sea level dropped over time, those levels were the, 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 the core sediment that you're looking at no longer preserves the deeper water species. Mm-hmm. And then as that continues to drop, eventually you're only going to get maybe tidal zone species. So it's not just the random distribution of the fossil record. It's what environments are you preserving? It's the rate of fossilization that's changing. And also the rate of fossilization, because it, certain layers will preserve more. You might get a beautiful shell bed in one layer, but then as that environment changes, for various reasons, you might just have sparser fossilization, mm-hmm. which means you're less likely to see more. Spe- you're going to see less species with less fossils overall. That's cool. So they got this sequence of extinctions that was strongly affected the patterns and timing of the extinction they were seeing were affected by how the environments were shifting and how their strata their their sedimentary layers were changing as they went down and the quote that i liked from from one of the authors that uh, came out of the press release was quote if mass extinction took place today complex but entirely false extinction patterns would be recorded regionally. That's awesome. Now, they also uh, developed a few methods to start accounting for this. They said, all right, at the end of our paper, we're going to talk about here are ways that we might be on the lookout for this ecological impact in other, you know, in the in the fossil record when we don't have living species mm-hmm, to go mm-hmm. on. So as time goes on, we'll hopefully be able to develop guidelines to help us be on the lookout for this as well very cool it's such a cool study i love it it's really neat because as you said this is this is a this is a technical paper not just in the fact that it is very technical heavy but it's like a 
it's like a engineer's guide to a <laughs> a mechanical product of this is the ins and outs of a research method which is cool i like that they are are stress testing yeah this research uh th- this way of, obser- of observing extinctions that's really cool yes and it's it's so it's one of those wonderful studies with a very clearly stated hypothesis mhm a clear question what how would we be misled if a mass extinction happened today and all we had to go on were the the fossil record that we can see right here yes and what a cool thing to investigate the thing i like about it is that it puts it in perspective uh the best way to put things like that in perspective is to say all right compared to today this is what we mean yes because it's really really easy to separate the past from today and forget that we are still undergoing all the exact same processes that are constantly going throughout all of history like Oh, yeah. Animals aren't done evolving just because they've looked the same for our grandparents and (laughs) great-grandparents. And they're not done going extinct just because we have conservation efforts in now. Like, all these things are still happening. We just can't see them because we live too short of lives. And so I like this because it brings it into perspective of this is how we could misunderstand this stuff because this is how our process misunderstood today. Yep. And it's and worth that's pointing awesome. out that this prob- this isn't news, I'm sure, to lots of people. The idea yeah. that ancient environments can affect your preservation and can affect your extinction signal. But this does appear to be the first study to empirically test that with a living species like this. So it's it's you're putting numbers on it. You're putting yes. actual data to it, which is really cool. Which is crucial to be able to improve it if you don't have... Uh, uh, actual research to work off of. It is indeed. Cool. Well, my last one, our last bit of news here, is uh, a little different because it's actually straying a little bit outside of paleontology into a bit of archaeology or zooarchaeology. What? I, I'm crossing the streams just a bit. Just just you, a little bit. I was told not to do that. It's, yeah, I know. I it, on good authority, uh, <laughs> we're gonna end up we're gonna end up un- undoing all of the clarifications of what a paleontologist and archaeologist is with this one. <laughs> <laughs> they talked about it on that their paleontology podcast, <clears throat> and just like that, we're outdated. Yes, <laughs> we belong in a museum. <laughs> so this research is on a Mayan dig site, and the animal remains that were found there. The research done on these element on these animal remains revealed that they were not only kept captive, you know, they were they were kept in human care for whatever amount of time and for various purposes, but they were also were not from the local area. Oh. So this suggests a long distance trade. A a, a prehistoric pet trade? Yes. Cool. Which is awesome. So this research is done by Nawa Sugiyama et al. in PLOS One. And we're going to be linking to the, once again, the press release from the Public Library of Science in phys.org again. So to start off, it has been known that the Mayans and other ancient Mesoamerican cultures, and Mesoamerica is the region of southern North America going through Mexico and, and reaching down 
to South America Mm -hmm. have used and utilized wild animals for various purposes. Uh, So this is not new that they've been using animals. They use them for ritual purposes and ceremonial purposes. They crafted things out of them, rugs and other, uh, other various items. They also acted as symbols for status and religious purposes and all of these things. So they've, they've been tied with the wildlife around them already. What was found here at a Maya city of Copan in, or Copan in Honduras was a series of animal remains, uh, ranging actually quite a bit, a number of things you wouldn't necessarily expect to find there. Uh, pumas, jaguars, other unidentified felids, deers, hmm. Owls, cool, which is neat. Spoonbills and crocodiles. Oh, so a wide variety of animals found at this dig site, and what they were looking for is to try to find out the the the, the life history of these animals a bit by looking at the stable isotopes in these bones. So stable isotope analysis, looking at the things absorbed by the bones throughout the animal's life. And you can tell lots of different things. The two things that popped up on this one that we're going to report on here is for the felids, they showed high levels of C4, carbon-4 intake, which is indicative of an anthropogenic diet, meaning fed by people. Interesting. So it suggests they were being taken care of by people, but they do not show signs of captive breeding. So they were not domesticated pets. They were... Kept, but not dom- not properly domesticated. Absolutely. This is probably very similar to what, maybe not nowadays as much since we've adjusted diets, but what early zoo animals would have very much shown. Right, so right. Wild animals, but being fed a diet prepared by people. So the felids show signs of being kept by people. The deer and the felids show oxygen isotope levels that indicate they were not from the area yeah. Of Copan City, they were areas outside of the Copan Valley. So interesting. That's what I was waiting for. Yes. So these animals had been taken care of by people long enough for it to affect their isotopes and had come from a distance away, which means or suggests that there was a trade network of captured wildlife between and among the Mesoamerican cultures of this time, which has been suggested before by researchers. So they were transporting long distance these wild animals for various purposes which is cool that's super cool this is really interesting to me because i i don't know if i've mentioned this on the podcast but i write press releases for Mm -hmm. plus occasionally and they press releases don't get uh, journalistic bylines though so it's always going to say plus i freelance for them i'm behind the scenes i wrote a press release for a study for them not too long ago about glass being used in a bunch of in in, in certain middle eastern cultures Mm -hmm. and they did the exact same thing they looked at the isotopes of the glass because different environments will have different chemical ratios and those will impact the things that are formed in those places and they found evidence of a trade network of glass materials and it's fascinating that you could do the same thing with the bones of extinct creatures or in ancient creatures and find trade networks. Absolutely. Uh, they are a product and you can trace them the exact same way you can trace archaeological materials. Which is so cool. And the thing that this really 
screams to me is that it means humans have been uh, uh, displacing animals for a long time. Yes, we have. <laughs> Which will actually play into our discussion. And now that we have wrapped up the news, and after this brief break, we'll be getting into our discussion of hybridization. Oh, boy. So we'll see you then. So I would like to start our discussion off with actually a quick story. Uh, a story, in fact, about the popularly voted best animal out there. I love snake stories. Best animal group out there by the poll here on the Common Sit Podcast. Cuban crocodiles. Cuban crocodiles. <laughs> so Cuban crocodiles are one of my all-time favorites. I mean, most crocodilians are. But <laughs> these are really interesting they are found in Cuba exclusively, and they're one of the most terrestrial of all the crocs. So they can run, they can jump, they're awesome. But there's estimated to be about 3,000 Cuba crocs left in the wild. Sad. So they're really close to being gone. They're one of the most endangered crocodilians alive today. Uh, beat out just barely by the gharial and the Chinese alligator, if I'm remembering all my numbers right. But these crocodiles have protections, but they're not all foolproof. Most of their danger is due to poaching for meat and skin and a food shortage that happened a number of years back that really took a hit on their population. They share their territory with the American crocodile, which we have here in North America and Florida and in the northern sections of South America and across the islands throughout the Caribbean and to Cuba. The American crocodile is doing much better because it's much more, they estimate, because it is much more elusive. They are very shy crocodiles. So they are avoiding poachers much more, while the Cuban is notoriously ill-tempered. So <laughs> I was reading a thing about when they were doing research, the way they decided to catch Cubans was they put a log on a rope and threw it into the water, and the Cubans would bite onto the log and hold on so they could pull them in. And they eventually had to start tying up the Cubans because they kept biting the log. <laughs> and they kept re-catching the same ones. <laughs> so they had to tie them up and put them aside. So they're just very angry, aggressive crocodiles compared to the American. So 2015, Milian Garcia decided to examine the Cuban crocodile population, both in the wild and human care, and do some genetic studies on them to assess the state of the, the species and found something fascinating. Of the 227 wild Cuban crocodiles surveyed in this, about half were found to be hybrids with the American crocodile. Oh. Of the 137 captive crocodiles, only 16.1% were found to be hybrids. Huh. Which is weird, because that means that there is a wild pressure of some sort for these crocodiles to hybridize. A lot of research is being done into why they are hybridizing, but it gets weirder. The population of American crocodiles there on the island are actually more genetically similar to the Cuban crocodiles there than they are to the American crocodiles found in the U.S. wetlands. What? So the hybrid crocodiles are fairly close to being fully Cuban, which raises the big question, is this hybridization threatening the genetic purity of Cuban crocodiles, or is it saving the population? Oh, weird. Yeah, this this one is still being I don't have answers because this is 
fairly new. I mean, 2015. Yeah. So we're still trying to figure out what's going on. Why do female Cuban crocodiles seem to prefer American crocodiles? But this is how interesting and messy hybridization can get very quickly. Oh boy! I'm, now I'm now I'm hooked. Right? You got me. That's this. Oh boy! These stories work. <laughs> so hybridization. What is hybridization? Basically, we already defined it briefly, but it is the to use the textbook definition, the act or process of mating organisms of different varieties or species to create a hybrid. Yes. So hybrid is the offspring of hybridization. A hybrid is two different groups coming together. Yes. Not a transition. And I've seen this, people get this confused. Yes, absolutely. Different from an evolutionary transition going from one state to another. This is literally, this This is, you got peanut butter in my chocolate. This is literally a f- yes. fusion of two bloodlines or lineages. It's why the hybrid car is partially electric, partially gas. Yes, it's it a is fusion. It is a fusion. Ha. Fusion. Ha. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I beat you to it by a second. <laughs> I, I did the fingers, though. I just want everyone to know. <laughs> Will's a method actor. <laughs> My fusion would have worked. We wouldn't have become fat Gogeta. Um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Hybridization is interesting, and it has been interesting throughout its history. One of the things I like about it is it used to be really hard to study because the only way you could identify a hybrid was, A, to watch the parents mate and see a hybrid come out, or to just look at them and look for traits of both species. Yeah. Before genetic research, before mole- before molecular surveys, we couldn't look at the genes. We just had to go, well, you look kind of like a mix. But those physical, those phenotypic characteristics can be misleading. So hybrids were not only hard to study, they were hard to even identify. And because of that, scientists of those times in those days thought hybridization was extremely rare outside of zoos and human breeding programs. But then we learned about genetics and we learned how to look for genetic markers of parent species and found out that it's not rare. It's actually no ridiculously common and surprisingly common, which brings us to the next part, which we're going to briefly go into because this is a topic we can cover on its own. But how does this affect how we identify a species if they're constantly crossing we should uh, preface this like you just hinted at. We'll do we'll do a bigger discussion on this. Absolutely, question. this is one of those just delightful questions. If you want to see a room full of scientists fight, throw this question <laughs> into the middle of it. Yes, no. So that what's is, a species anyway? And then back out. Yep, and then just just popcorn. <laughs> so species, as we all know, is a type of organism, but The definition, the popular one that you will often see is from Ernst Mayer in 1942, an evolutionary biologist who put forward the definition that a species was uh, or could be defined as groups of actually or potentially interbreeding natural populations, which are reproductively isolated from other such groups. Yes, a group that keeps breeding with the other members in the group and making offspring with each other. That's your species, not breeding with anybody else. And so this this would be the often de- described as the biggest gene pool possible in natural s- situations. So 
Mm-hmm. A species is the gene pool, the interbreeding, sharing genes group of organisms. You'll often hear a, a version of that definition that is where hybridization really throws a wrench in everybody's understanding is that species are any group of animals that interbreeds and creates viable and fertile offspring. Right. That's like the high school biology. Yes. You'll find it in every book that you would have gone through there. And neither of these definitions is perfect. So out of the gate, hybridization is not the only thing that breaks these down. One big one that I came across here and it just had never occurred to me, uh, asexual reproduction really throws a wrench in this. Bacteria already are weird because they can just share genes, not hybridize, literally just go, here, have this. Yeah, just swapping genes. There you go. I have two of those. You can have this. It's just trading cards for bacteria when it comes to genetics. But they also. This is why we don't talk about bacteria. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But they also just make copies of themselves, which isn't technically interbreeding. Nope. That's just making copies. That's just asexual. That's multiplying. So does that fall into the definition? Also, one of the big kinks in using this definition for all studies of life is for most fossil species, you can't confirm nope. this. You can't find out who was breeding with who because they're dead and they don't do that anymore. Yep. So this definition, this is, as David said, is a very nebulous and there's lots of more specific versions of the definition that apply or allow for different things and ones used by more certain sciences and groups more and less and so on and so forth. The question we ask for our discussion and what we're going to be focusing on is, does this concept of hybridization break the species concept fundamentally? Yes. If species can breed and make hybrids, are they species? And that's a question that we cannot answer in the time that we have for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a, that's a question that has not been answered in a couple thousand years yes. of studying biology. So. But what we can we'll, say we'll talk is about it. it does not necessarily break the concept. The way I would like to word it is it adjusts the concept. Well, and it, it reveals that our, and this is once again, a whole other, whole yes. other discussion about <laughs> the species definitions. It reveals that a species is not a simple thing to define. Absolutely. To to give a historical example of that, Carl Linnaeus, you may have heard of him, the person famed for creating the binomial, the two-name naming structure that we use for species nowadays. Yep, and he's also, the one who's, who's King Philip something squirrels. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> he also had his view on what a species was. The species concept goes all the way back to, for the very beginnings of it, Aristotle, if I remember right. So it's very ancient. His view on species were that they were fixed forms. He believed they were unchanging versions of life. A crow was a crow, immutable. These did not, a crow was a crow and it would always be a crow. Yes, and its offspring would be crows. Forever and ever. But then Linnaeus saw hybridization and this and it was among plants which we will discuss because who boy do plants well, like to hybridize yeah. oh man who he witnessed it in plants and that was what switched him to realizing species could change not evolve that concept was not in no, no, yet but of course not but they could change so they were not unchanged so 
hybridization widens our understanding of what species are. We're still figuring out what that definition should be. There's some definitions that allow for hybridization. There's some definitions that work around it. So there's a lot out there. The bottom line is there definitely are species in nature. There definitely are different kinds of animals. Our definition is probably the thing that is lacking because we made it up. We designed it. Not It was not born from nature. It was something we've tried to apply to nature. And we are not a fully understanding... Uh, we do not have a fully understood body of knowledge on nature. So our definition is lacking somewhere. Yeah, we're trying to categorize. Exactly. We love it. Fit nicely into boxes. But species is a useful concept. No, they... They break through barriers violently, if necessary. Yeah, dangerously. <laughs> so, we talked about what a hybrid is. Why is a hybrid is? <laughs> who did who did this? Who? D- why does hybridization happen? That's if it does happen regularly. But if species are groups that interbreed with themselves, why are they breeding with each other? The bottom line answer to that: first off. Hybridization happens with closely related species. And what this tells us is that we are either witnessing recently or the process of speciation. This is animals that came from an ancestor, common ancestor, and are now becoming their own species, but are still close enough to cross paths. Yes, this is important because, you know, an elephant and a rhino do not interbreed. You're not going to get an elephino hybrid you're not gonna get (laughs) elephino elephino you're not gonna get (laughs) you know it has to be closely related and yeah i i love the the notion that hybridization is effectively speciation caught in the act yes that you can imagine a species being split on opposite sides of a river Mm -hmm. occasionally still interacting with each other so you get two distinct populations that are occasionally still creating offspring while they're diverging more and more dis- different from each other. It's that common connection from to their ancestry that allows this hybridization to happen. So all hybrids share an ancestry. So Yes, a recent ancestry. A recent. Now, we'll get into how recent, because there's actually some weirdness with that, depending on which group you look at. Yep. <laughs> so that's how they're able to hybridize. Why are they doing this? Because obviously, if they kept doing it nonstop, then they wouldn't split. That's just interbreeding at that point. So there has to be a reason that the hybrids are now popping up. They have to have had time to become different and then are meeting back up. And so typically, most hybrid situations are where species have become isolated from one reason or another and then been brought back together. Lots of things can do this. Uh simple ones and exciting ones are things like the landscape can change something changing the actual barriers physical barriers earthquakes rivers changing path uh you know them getting around barriers as well them going finally reaching the other side of the canyon where it meets back up and now they're different but they're able to mingle sea levels rising and falling and reconnecting islands or separating islands so that's a big that's a big trend in hybridization in nature is that these things were separate now they're not and oh we haven't seen you in 10,000 years how are you doing <laughs> and so they're able to mingle <laughs> do, do you st- do you still drink coffee <laughs> yes <Excellent. laughs> yes 
One of the big ones, which is going to become a trend in this episode, is we also do that to the landscape a lot. We sure Humans, do. Humans. <laughs> we we like to build it. walls and dams. Yep. And, and we also cause wide change. Climate change is causing yeah. some of this. The popular Pizzly Bear or Growler Bear. <laughs> I like Pizzly. Pizzly. I, I lean toward Growler because it sounds like growl. And it's like, it should be a bear. It should be big and scary. <laughs> but Pizzly's cuter. The Pizzly Bear, which is the more popular name online, though there's actually being conversation as to which name to use. Uh, I like the Canadian's uh, suggestion is the Nanulak, which is the combination of the Inuit names Nanuk and Akalak. Oh, for the polar and the brown bear. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. I'd like that one. This is a hybridization between the polar bear and the grizzly bear. It has been seen in human care a few times. It's still very rare, but it has been found once in the wild. And the reason that they think this is increasing to be able to actually find one alive in the wild instead of just in human care is that the ice is melting and many polar bears to adjust for this are moving south where the grizzlies live and so we may see a fusion of these two species if this continues which would be very interesting because they do have a fusion of the features they have a smaller head than the grizzly bigger head than the polar bear longer neck than the grizzly shorter neck than the polar bear partially furred paws ah. which is cute i like that because polar bears have furred paws because they have snowshoes so they've got a, they are a fusion of these two. They look like you mix the two Play-Dohs together. And so it, it you get weird stuff like this. Geographic restraints on hybridization always come to my mind because if anyone out there has been made the habit of looking at species distributions for reptiles. Yes. You'll all like if you pick up your Peterson's field guide and you look at the distribution of for example snake or lizard species what you will often see, and sometimes it's with subspecies. Uh, this can happen with subspecies as well, because, again, our definitions, bleh, yep. but you'll see, like, the northern species in blue, and they'll live in the northern states, and then the map will show the southern species in red, and they'll live in the southern states, and then in the in-between portion, it'll be striped, red and blue, because there is a distinct northern group and a distinct southern group and they are mostly sticking to where they are but in the place where they overlap in the middle you get hybridization it's that venn diagram effect yep not enough to merge the traits across north and south but just enough to allow there to be distinct fusions in the middle yes and this can be caused by one of those examples uh Ecotones, which I like this one, where yep. habitats meet, where you have the transition from one habitat to another, from plain to forest, from shore to beach, from deep sea to shallow. All of those things are where the two habitats blur. The edge is not, you can't draw a line on where the forest ends. Is it with the first tree or when you can stop, start seeing through the trees, you know? And this is where these animals of differing habitats, but close relation, can intermingle naturally. Yeah, they can both live there, and they're both looking for mates. And so sometimes they meet up. Another really big one is direct human effects. Not just of us changing things, but us 
introducing species to new areas, or breeding. Humans make hybrids on purpose all the time. Just because we can. Because we can. Or by accident. Yes, absolutely, which is one of the popular ones, Africanized honeybees. (laughs) Whoops. Oops. Oopsies. My bad, guys. (laughs) It was in, in 1956 that a Brazilian scientist, Warwick Kerr, imported African honeybees to South America with the intention to breed better productive and better temperament uh, having bees. But a number of queens of the African honeybees and some European honeybees under his care then got out and started to breed with wild European honeybees as well and created the Africanized honeybee, which is now spread through Mexico and up through California and is making its way on and on and on. I think they recently made it to Tennessee, actually. Wow, <laughs> nice. Look, yeah. look out for those. Yeah, I'll be on the lookout. <laughs> now, fun fact on these, they actually are not more toxic than other bees. They're just more aggressive when defending their hive. It's, they sting more than other honeybees. Their sting is no worse. They just, they're actually a lot, they're far, slightly smaller than other honeybees and they just defend themselves but if you find one just around randomly they're not going to kill you that's not how it works we call them killer bees because it sells newspapers it sure does one of the things now we need to talk about that's why they happen but why does it not happen all the time if if this is so rampant how are species just not breeding constantly with one another yes and how does it stop how does it stop and there's a number of barriers. The two big categories are pre-zygotic and post-zygotic, which means before and after uh, coitus. Before <laughs> <laughs> the business. Before and after mating. Before and after coffee. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> pre-zygotic barriers are things that stop animals from mating. Period. It it stops them from, from ever accomplishing the act of mating. And there's a few main ones. We're going to breeze through these so we can go on and continue the conversation. But some of the big ones, habitat isolation. You're literally in different areas blocked by something, an ocean, a river, a mountain, a ravine, blah, blah, blah. Temporal isolation, which is one I like. You're active at different times. Yeah. Either you're... Eternal or diurnal. Or your mating season doesn't sync up. So when you're in the mood, they're not in the mood. And... It won't match up. A weird one that a lot of people don't think about is behavioral isolation. You often see this in things like songbirds. That's why they all have different songs. A lot of those birds could breed. If you you artificially inseminated, for instance, they would have an offspring because they're very closely related. But your song doesn't do it for me. Only my own species does because our songs have now made it so we can always tell each other apart and we won't get confused. Yep, this happens with frogs, too. There yes. are a number of spe- species that can only be told apart by their song. It's one of the things suggested for a lot of the ostentatious decorations we see on dinosaurs, is that this may have been species identification. That's still unsure, but there's a that's it could be for similar reasons of, I can tell you are a potential mate because you have the same spiky bits I do. Yeah. Gametic isolation, which means that they might produce egg and sperm cell, but they can't combine during fertilization. So even if they were to mate, they won't actually combine into a 
gamete, a, a embryo. Zygote. Pre-zygotic. You do not get a zygote. So this this could be something like one of the big ones is a chromosome inversion, which means that one of your chromosomes has flipped over. So when you try to mate, it's literally you're matching up the wrong end of the battery to the wrong end of the other battery. It won't it won't fuse into a good cell, so it won't actually become become a zygote. And the one that I think is most interesting because our friend Josh back in school days used to reference this one all the time is mechanical isolation, meaning you can't do it. It's just it, it the parts don't fit. You are you are using a European plug on a US <laughs> outlet. <laughs> it won't match you, up. You're putting the USB in upside down. Upside down and you're trying to plug it into the wall. <laughs> this is often seen in insects. Yes. Where their mating their genitals, their mating structures are shaped wrong for other species. They only will fit their own species. And insect genitalia evolve very quickly in many yes, cases. So do. you'll get these changes accumulating rapidly. There's uh, ground beetles, uh, carabus, that, uh, two different species of carabus that have, the males have their mating structures that will only fit within a mating pouch of the female. If they mate with the wrong female, they could potentially kill her because the... <laughs> projections off of their uh their their penal structure will break off and tear the egg wall ah. so that even if they mate it won't be able to develop into a young arthropods are terrible yeah josh used to always say that if the beetles he was studying had different genitals he counted them as different species and this is why and that's all that's a common practice yes identifying based on genitalia yep now all of the examples that you've been giving are animals, because that's what we do. Yes. But a lot of these happen in, for example, plants. Uh, for me, I, that's what I always think of when I think of temporal isolation. Plants, if you're blooming at different times of the year, you're not going to be able to mate with each other. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you can also get, you know, different shaped pollen grains can create mechanical isolation. So the same sorts of things can, can cut off reproduction in plant species. Different shaped flowers can ensure that only a certain kind of pollinator can only use your flowers. Yes. So lots of stuff like that. Now, the other side of it is more limited because once you're made a zygote, there's only so many things that keep it from becoming an animal uh, or any organism. The post-zygotic barriers keep the hybrid from developing into a healthy, functioning, or viable adult organism. Yeah, so you've fertilized. Egg and sperm have come together, created what's supposed to grow now into a new organism, but it somewhere along the line can't make it. And this could be for lots of reasons. A chromosomal mismatch is a big one where the chromosomes, you either have different numbers, so it literally does not form together to a correct genome for the, the, the new critter. Or something is missing from one that won't match up. So that your DNA just doesn't fit together right. And it becomes inviable. Now, there's a couple of ways you can be inviable when you're a hybrid. The big obvious one is it's fatal. Being a hybrid kills you for yeah. some reason. You don't develop properly or something you got from mom is just not compatible with something you got from dad. And it shuts down parts of the body that are important. Absolutely. And a lot of these things could mean that you grow and are alive for a bit, but if it's a fatal flaw, you're not going to develop into your own 
group if you're all being born or many of you are being born with just crippling genetic issues. An example that I thought was interesting is platyfish and swordtail fish. Platyfish often have spots on the dorsal fin and short swordtail fish do not, but they can hybridize. And some of the hybrids, when backcrossed, which means hybrid mated with a parent species, have formed malignant tumors in the spot because the spot won't stop growing. Because while platyfish have genes for a spot and genes to stop the spot, swordtails have none of those. So some of the hybrids get make a spot, but don't get a gene to stop making the spot. So they just keep making a spot. Wow. And it shortens their lifespan. Yeah. That sucks. Yep. <laughs> so just by being a hybrid, these animals are less fit to survive. They are going to have a harder time as a potentially new species. The other big one is sterility. You're not a species if you can't make more of yourself. Nope. So you might be healthy. Once again, the mule being the big example. Mule actually means in many other things, sterile hybrid, even though it specifically refers to horse and donkey. This is a very common occurrence among hybrids. It is true of a lot of them. Most big cat hybrids have sterility problems. And usually, this is very interesting, it is the male that is sterile. Often these females of these hybrids can be fertile, but the males aren't. And this goes to Haldane's rule, which is a rule that says in hybrid animals whose sex is determined by sex chromosomes, so the X and Ys that we and many other mammals share, if one sex is absent, rare, or sterile, it is almost always the heterogamete sex, which Uh, for us is the XY, which means the males. Yes, heterogamete means different gametes. If you are a female as a mammal, you have XX. You have the same, so you're homogamete, which is simpler in the fact that it is the same thing twice. So when it's two different ones, if the hybrids tend to have problems, it's usually on that one. Interesting. Mules are a great example. Mule is a offspring of a male donkey and a female horse. If it's reversed, it's a, a, a henny, which are much more rare. Mules are actually a really interesting example, and we'll get into this in just a little bit, because they are excellent organisms oh yeah they're great they're stronger longer lived more resistant disease and many argue smarter than either of their parents aren't they also bigger yeah they're 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 like stockier they're good work animals they've got better musculature for this so they are awesome but the males are almost always sterile there have been rare occurrences where there have been fertile male but it's like not not average at all so they're like war forged we made them and they're great but they can't make more of themselves absolutely yes exactly <laughs> we have to sustain this one by keeping a population of donkeys and a population of horses alive to keep mating that's such a weird thing oh and it gets weirder one of the things that makes them that probably causes the sterility is that donkeys have 62 chrom- 62 chromosomes horses have 64 so mules have 63. What? That's that's ridiculous. I did <laughs> so, not know that. That is So they can't split evenly. It's an odd number. So it makes it weird for their mating is probably what messes up because it wasn't meant to be that way because both the parents have even numbers and it bumped down to a mid number. That's so strange. Isn't that weird? Now we should make it clear that we've talked about all these different barriers that can come up and... The reason that you end up with these barriers, now now some of them are obvious, right? The river, the earthquake, the whatever. But 
anytime you have isolation, anytime two parts of a population get separated, evolution never stands still. Nope. Your genetics are going to keep shifting. Your body's going to keep shifting. Even if it's random changes, even if it's not directional, it's not something you're being selected for, those changes will accumulate over time. And if you're not constantly sharing genetic material with the, the between the two populations, you will eventually build up differences. And those differences might mean you behave differently. You're active at different times. You're egg and sperm don't fit together you end up with different chromosome numbers these barriers can naturally appear they also can be purposeful barriers because if your hybrids often are unhealthy mating outside of your species is a waste of time and energy so those that mate continuously within the species do better and they're having more offspring than those who get confused exactly so these barriers can actually be helpful to the survival and uh, benefit of the species. Yeah, they can they can be reinforcing. We don't mix. Feedback. We don't, yeah, we don't, we don't. It's like a Romeo and Juliet thing. Exactly. If I could remember their last names, I would reference it here. The, the Capulets and the Montagues. That's it. Uh, yep. I was going to make that joke earlier, but I also forgot Montagues at the time, so I <laughs> skipped it. And then you said that, and my brain went, oh, here you go. <laughs> it's also important to note that those barriers can come up naturally, but not always at the same times or in the same sequence for different species, which is why you can end up with sometimes a little early change, like changing the song, mm -hmm. can happen while you still look very similar or still genetically are very similar. You have two different frog populations that don't breed, even though almost nothing else has changed. But on the other hand, you can have species, populations that become quite different from each other in many, many ways, but have retained enough genetic similarity that they are still able. That part has not yet been lost. And if they don't develop a reason to not mate, they may start to freely mix. It's, it's all a very nebulous and like every scenario has a uh, opposite case just about. So it's really, it gets really messy. It's really hard to predict what will happen and what the causes and barriers are. So that's what stops it, but it definitely happens. So what happens when it happens? And that's what we're going to talk about in a moment. So once you've had two species successfully mate and successfully make a hybrid and that hybrid has successfully been born, what are the different things that can happen to it due to this unholy union, due to this hybridization? What are the different results that we tend to see in hybrids? There's an endless list of different outcomes. So, I mean, I can't go over everything that has happened. You get a blending of all these different things, but we're going to focus on some of the big ones that you tend to see. The first big one is the obvious one. Traits merge. You With many hybrids, not all hybrids, some hybrids will strongly favor a parent because that parent's genes may be more dominant in their traits. But with many of them, if not most, you see a fusion, sometimes almost perfectly 50-50, like the Pisley bear, where it looks 
it, ha- it if you glanced at it, it would be hard for you to say right off which one it was because it is a perfect blending. This is called introgression, where you have adopted traits. And when it continues, you can actually have that be almost species-wide. So you, a species can actually adopt the fused traits of a hybrid through this process, which is an interesting process that can have kind of negative results depending on whose side of the story you're looking at. <laughs> and we'll talk about that at the end. But the this is basically the permanent incorporation of genes from one species to another through repeated breeding of a hybrid with its parent species. Ooh, so you make a hybrid. Familiar. Yeah. Make a hybrid, and then it continues to bl- breed with its own species again. And it carries those those traits back. It Trojan horses it in. Yeah. Uh, Trojan mules it in, I guess. I suppose so. This is seen in stuff like almost all wild herds of bison today have some amount of cattle yep. genes in them. Because we crossbred them a while back, making the beefaloes, and they got out, and now it's rampant. It's not; They still lean toward bison, but they all have slight genetic connection to those cattle that yep. we bred them with way back when. That has drifted through the population. Absolutely. Now, you can get various outcomes with this. The big benefit of blended traits is hybrid vigor, or heterosis, which is... By blending the traits of your parents, you get the benefits of both groups, and you are now stronger than either was separately. Yes, like the mule. Like in, the mule. In certain respects. Absolutely. But like the mule, you see this a lot of times with, uh, we actually aim for this with certain things like plants, where we will blend breeds of corn that will grow better because we're breeding for the fast growth, fast growth here and the you know immunity to famine or drought or insects here and we keep breeding until we get what we're looking for yeah this is also very common with at least introgression the fusing of of traits is common with pets especially in the reptile trade yes uh, with things like snakes Mm -hmm. where you'll get mixing of different species to get certain color patterns because you want to take this color from that species and this pattern from that species and try to get something in between. Or dog breeds. You do the same thing with dog breeds. And dog breeds are actually a really great example of the downside to mixing of traits is that you can actually despecialize to where instead of blending and becoming stronger from both sides, you just kind of average out the specialized traits of the two species that have been by natural selection and pressure made to best fit their habitats you know, so through the trials of death and survival they have become specialized but then when you fuse those two you just get kind of a bland middle ground that doesn't really work as well as either in the habitat yeah now you're not good at pulling sleds or racing other dogs exactly this is the other side of that blending of traits is you may go downhill uh, you also may develop new abilities Instead of just becoming stronger, you may be able to do something weird. The tephritid flies, tephritid fruit flies, are a type of fly found here in the U.S. that are specialized fruit parasites. So each fly uses a different fruit so as not to compete with one another. And they lay their eggs on the fruit, the larva burrow into the fruit, eat it from the inside, and then turn into a fly. 
this is where the idea of the worm and the apple kind of thing, this huh. that kind of parasite is what you're thinking of when you cartoon show worm and an apple. The snowberry fly and the blueberry fly, respectively, are on snowberries and blueberries, and they do not go to each other's berries because they would not be able to survive very well on those berries. This keeps them from typically breeding, but every now and then they do form hybrids, which, as we were saying with the blending traits, typically do very poorly because, as far as can be told, they don't do quite as well as either adult on either berry. So they've lost that specialization. Which is another feature that selects against hybridization. Exactly. If your babies suffer because you hybridize, then that practice of hybridizing is going to fall away. Until the 1900s when honeysuckles were introduced. (gasps) And these hybrid weirdos could eat the berries of the honeysuckle and flourished. So they were able to better eat this berry than either parent and now suddenly had the option to succeed. So you can get weird stuff when it comes to hybrids. Unexpected things. The other thing you can get from this is health issues. Like we said with the spot growing, a lot of animals develop health issues because dog breeds, for instance. You're putting the heart the size of a smaller breed into the body the size of a Great Dane. And they're not able to cope because you're you're mixing the wrong car parts together, so they're not they're not functioning as a unit. Ligers, the blending of a lion and a tiger, and I believe it's for that one it's male lion, female tiger. Because with most hybrid names, they put yep. the male name up front. It is utterly fascinating, and I, to just take a side note here, in many cases, and we mentioned this with the mules, the hybrid is affected by which species is the is parent. which parent. Yeah, a liger is different from a tigon. And they look different. <laughs> and they are very different, which very is another different. reason why hybridization might not be favored is that you shouldn't, if you have a bunch of uh, cats and they can create four different things by breeding, that's not a good population. It's not streamlined. It's it's chaotic and random. And so it's, it's hard to work from that. Ligers are by... Measurement right now, the largest living big cat. They grow huge. They do not continuously grow. That is a myth that was started about them. They do reach full size, but they get big. Bigger than most of the current records. But they can actually get too big. A lot of their organs can't quite cope with the size of the full-grown cat. So they're not as healthy as they would have been had they just been a tiger or a lion. You're putting parts together that aren't meant to work together, including genetic and hormonal. Like, this can be more than just organs that don't fit. Like, you, you've you got whole blueprint frameworks that don't quite mesh. To use a more horrific example, you're mixing Mega Bloks and Legos. It's just not done. Will, Will, you I, shut your mouth. I went through, because when I was younger, I was foolish, and I purged every Mega Block from my Lego collection. <laughs> it took... <laughs> Hours. <laughs> I have a bag for whenever I've missed one, and it is the Mega Bloks bag, and it is where the bad pieces go. <laughs> <laughs> we keep it pure. Now, that's if you get a blending, but every now and then you can get a very interesting result in that everything goes right, and you make a hybrid, and it works, and it grows up, and it's healthy, and you actually create a new species. 
not only is it good, but it's better than its parent species in some respect. Yes, it's able to do something that makes it able to survive in the in environment in competition with the other two species and become its own isolated lineage. And this is how you get speciation through hybridization, which is cool. It's a fascinating phenomenon. This is where we come back to plants because, man, plants do this all the time. I saw a few claims of this. I could not find the study that these claims were drawing from, but I saw it three or four times while I was doing all my research. So take this with with a little bit of weight, but not all the weight. There have been claims made that about 50% of all plant species arose through hybridization. <laughs> and even if it's not that high, it's high. <laughs> Plants do it just willy-nilly. There are some orchids that are impossible to identify because of this. Oh, well, plants can do this the ridiculous thing where you can take a piece of one plant and stick yeah. it on another plant. and it just, Plants break a lot of rules. I, I asked my botany professor why plants weren't considered colonial because you could chop them in half and <laughs> make two plants and all this stuff. And it, he explained that it's because they have a system that runs throughout the organism and they work as, but they are weird. They, they, there's a reason they aren't with animals because they don't work like animals. <laughs> sunflowers are a really great example of this. Uh, researchers looking at uh, the sunflower genus Helianthus uncovered three species due to hybridization, each of which inhabited a extreme environment compared to the parents' species environment that the parents could not quite uh, occupy. Well, it's a lot like the flies you were talking about before, that you had snow, snowberry and blueberry, and now you've created a mixture that can inhabit honeysuckle, and you've got a third population that can do a different thing. Absolutely. And so this is, this is, you're making this new thing and it's, then it runs off without the other two species once the hybrids are able to start breeding. And now it's on its own track. So this happens, this happens quite a bit. It's how we get new breeds of dogs is we, we breed a short dog with a different dog and we get a dachshund and then we start breeding dachshunds together. And now we have dachshunds. That's a, human caused version and there's a lot of other things that go into that because they are all technically the same species those are sub species or breeds depending on how you look at it but same concept with the math this is also and i don't remember the full details of this but the famous populations of all female whiptail lizards mm -hmm. are hybrids oh that's cool that they're at least a couple at least some of those populations are hybrids of two different species that, for some reason, are able to reproduce parthenogenetically. And there are no males, because they just ladies that keep cloning themselves. So this was a point where they made a hybrid, and the hybrid said, no, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I've got it from here. <laughs> yep. All right, you did it. So every now and then, hybrids make something not just new once, but a new lineage. But this is, this is probably my favorite weird thing about hybridization. It can also potentially go the other way. Yeah, we talked about this several yes, episodes we ago. Did. You had an awesome news source about some ravens where we looked at the common raven, Corvus corbrix. Smartest of all birds. 
smartest of all birds. And it showed signs that its genome was the result of hybridization somewhere in its past from the California and the whole Arctic ravens that diverged uh, one and a half million years ago. And then evidently one absorbed the other and they became the common raven we know today. Yes, that they, they the two lineages became different, started hybridizing, didn't get rid of the, you know, no, the barriers didn't form and then merged their populations again. Yes, this is where the introgression can go too far, where yeah, you yeah. absorb traits so much that you genetically absorb the other animal, which is potentially seen from a certain angle, a form of extinction. Yes. Oh, you, look at you that. had two species. Now you have one. So you have decreased your species diversity. <laughs> also referred to as reverse speciation. Yes, it is. is. I love just such a weird... It's yeah. ominous. <laughs> it's oh, more, yes, excellent. Uh, it's the other way fantastic. I've heard is speciation reversal, which just sounds like like I'm going to use my reversal ray. <laughs> you, you are not one. I, I think this is a great time to make a, a brief note about taxonomy. <laughs> so way back in episode 10, we talked about how we d define groups and categorize organisms and kingdom phylum class order family genus species and how we name them hybrids really throw a big old wrench in our conventional naming system because if the horse is equus cabalis and a donkey is equus sinus and they produce a fusion what do you call it yep and the standard <laughs> way to who to, takes whose last name yeah exactly right the standard way to do this is to write Equus cabalis, the horse, X, yep. which represents a cross, Equus sinus. It doesn't get its own name. And then there's the really interesting question of what if they reverse, mm -hmm. which name do you keep? And, and I think this is always really interesting, because taxonomy is kind of arbitrary, right? Where we decide to say, this is where the subspecies name is, this is the species, this is the genus, etc., and because, like I said before, when those barriers show up, it can be different in relation to the other features, you can get circumstances where it's not just breeds hybridizing or species hybridizing. There are a number of examples of genus hybridization. Um, the wolfen is an example of this that, yeah. that always comes to my mind because the wolfen is a, a hybrid of... Bottlenose dolphins, yep. genus Terciops, with false killer whales, which are a different genus, Pseudorca. Yep. Uh, I believe sheeps and goats are also an example so. of this. I they think are so. different genera. And also, <laughs> there are apparently examples, this is on the Wikipedia page, of, uh, so chickens and pheasants can, can hybridize despite being classified in different families. Yep. And... Apparently, and I have not looked any deeper into this, but there are there's at least one case of invertebrate hybridization that crosses orders. Of course it does. My goodness, invertebrates. Apparently sea urchin, a sea urchin species and a sand dollar species have been made to hybridize and they are classified in different orders of life. So that's it can get 
really weird really quick. It really does. The fact that we are trying, and it, again, it's the categorizing thing. That is our fault. Like yes. we we named them that, and our naming system does not account for the wacky side effects of divergent evolution. Well, and and it gets even weirder because hybridization is not consistent across all groups. As you pointed out, there you can have varying degrees of relatedness for hybrids. They also can lose the ability at different stages. So there is a research, uh, a bit of research in the Proceedings of Natural Academy of Science, where researchers found that frogs and birds are able to hybridize long after speciation. On average, the birds showed about uh, showed ability to hybridize after about 22 million years since speciation from their common ancestor, and frogs were about 21 million years. So roughly the same for them. Mammals, on the other hand were shown on average to only be able to speciate if it had only been about two to three million years since their common ancestor. So some animals can have been can have been different for a very long time and then still mix back together, while mammals, it has to be a very short amount of time. Interesting. Muddying the waters further. And then you get to the really weird question of, okay, but what if your new hybrid species hybridizes with something else? <laughs> yeah, and what if you have, like, three diversion species yeah what if they make a bunch of different ones and now you can and then and then i guess you get a species complex yes <laughs> which is which is an actual term referring to a taxonomic grouping of closely related species not a emotional or psychological yes. <laughs> disorder that scientists develop trying to define what a species is though there could be arguments made it's <laughs> So since we were talking about speciation reversal, one particular case often comes up, which is a popular reference to this, but not supported by research. And it will lead us into our next section because it is the extinction of the Neanderthals for quite a while. And still sometimes today, it was posited that one of the potential causes for the Neanderthals going extinct is that they interbred with humans, which we know happened, and that we absorbed them, that we outbred them and just incorporated them into ourselves like the Borg. And we know that there was introgression with hybridization with Neanderthals because all hum most humans today, all out-of-Africa humans. Yep, all non-African modern humans uh, have Neanderthal DNA. About 1% to 4% in our genome. Yep. And if you do 23andMe, they will tell you how much Neanderthal you have. I forget how much Neanderthal I have. I think it was like 2% or something. Nice. Nice. Uh, but yeah, because we absorbed yeah, some of that interbreeding, some of those picked up traits got spread around the whole extra Africa population of humanity. Absolutely. And there was times when it was even more. There was uh, one human specimen 40,000 years ago that they found 6 to 9% neanderthal dna which i think is is interesting Ooh. if it's been slowly diluting further and further yeah yeah uh which is cool we know that homo sapiens us humans made it with neanderthals them humans and we have evidence of interbreeding going back a hundred thousand years ago and this is something we can definitely tell but our next section is going to be focusing on this because some of the as we said at the beginning 
it is hard to confirm hybrids when you're looking at straight fossils because you can't watch them in the act. So you can't confirm. And for most of the fossil of the fossil record, you can't get DNA evidence to look for markers of parenthood. Recent things you can, though, at least in certain circumstances. And the cool stuff we're going to talk about is going to be with us because, man, did we like to hybridize. We sure did. Ooh, we hybridized with Neanderthals. And we know that that happened at least regularly enough for it to be part of our genome. We also know that we hybridized with the Denisovans. And that Neanderthals and Denisovans hybridized. Yes, that was another recent news piece. The Last nine- episode, we talked about the first generation oh hybrid Denisovans. Ah, oh, it's the coolest thing. So that it was, for anyone who needs a refresher from that news piece, it was a 90,000-year-old bone fragment from a female whose mother was Neanderthal and father was Denisovan. Yelp. For everyone who needs a refresher on Denisovans, these are a branch of ancient human diverged from close relatives around 400,000 years ago with Neanderthals, and both of those groups diverged from us about 600,000 years ago. And there's very few remains. We literally have like a pinky and a few other bone fragments. Yeah, the one that in that news article from last episode was, I think, the fifth confirmed Denisovan chunk. We don't have any complete bones bigger than a tooth or a pinky. So we don't know what they looked like. Yeah. Just boop. So we don't know what they looked like, but we have gotten to study their DNA or at least partial DNA structures. And it has shown us some cool stuff. This is my favorite thing about it. So we know we hybridized with these two groups, but with the Denisovans, we know that we did it on at least two separate accounts with two separate groups. Because whilst doing DNA studies on a pinky bone from a Denisovan woman, 41,000 years old in Siberia's Altia Mountains, researchers looked at the genomes of people from Japan and China and found segments that closely matched that woman that were definitely... Denisovan DNA, very similar to hers. But then they also found segments that were definitely Denisovan that were not similar to hers. Huh. So we got different Denisovan DNA from two different groups of these ancient humans. Interesting. So we have that, we have a love triangle here with Neanderthals, Homo (laughs) sapiens, and Denisovans. But we didn't stop there. There's also evidence. This is not... As direct, because a lot of these we do not have DNA from, but that we were hybridizing with African ancestors as well. Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and possibly others also show strong signs that we hybridized. And basically what they did, this was really cool, is they used modern human DNA and they were able to simulate the history and basically reverse engineer human DNA back to that time and look for the sections that stood out and found evidence of multiple cases of potential hybridization with for the timing that they would have been back to would have been these ancient ancestors. And, you know, as remarkable as that sounds, it's really not surprising. No, Uh, we talked in episode 18 B about how complete our record of human evolution is and how much we know about ourselves and our ancient species cousins and hybridization in theory should be a thing that happens anytime you have speciation yes 
you should always there should always be a point where your different populations are still interbreeding or capable of interbreeding before they finally diverge whether it's successful or not is depending on the situation but yeah it should happen at some point yeah either you it could happen quickly it could happen it could take a long time the hybridization might prevent speciation at all yes you might remerge before speciation truly happens but it makes perfect sense that we carry within us the legacy of all of the lineages that branched off and it ultimately gave rise to very different groups. And as fun as that idea is, is that we Borg style absorbed each group as we bred. There's not <laughs> evidence that that's why groups like the Neanderthals went extinct. There's lots of other things that could have been a cause there. But we were definitely mixing, which I really like because when we had our human evolution episodes, you made the reference to having all these different lineages of humans being very much like D&D or Lord of the Rings, where you have different races of intelligent hominids. And now it's very much like D&D because now you have all the hybrid races. You have half yes. elves and you have mules and you have, you have half orcs and you half have orcs. Ha there's half giants. Yep. I was going to make the same reference. We yep. were actually doing it. Yes. We're mating with everybody. Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, I, evidently sci-fi is correct in that if you're human, you just get to breed with whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> but notably, of course, you know, we don't breed with chimps and we don't breed with gorillas because there is a point where you lose this ability. And, and it, I think it's fascinating to wonder, and I don't know if this has been answered. We know we bred with Neanderthals early on in our evolution. When did we stop? Yes. At what Were point we still did we... able to breed with Neanderthals 40,000 years ago? Mm-hmm. I do not know. Yes. it It's very interesting question. This is about going to wrap up our discussion because we only have so much time left, but I wanted to quickly touch on a really interesting kink that hybridization throws into things other than species identification and taxonomy and figuring out the fossil record. This is <laughs> another everything. Oh yeah. One of the big things that hybridization is weird on because it's both really good and potentially really bad is conservation. Modern conservation hybrids are a really interesting player. In some cases they can save the day. The B3 F3 chestnut hybrid of the American chestnut and the Asian chestnut bred together to resist the chestnut blight introduced from Asia here in the U.S. to finally be able to have phenotypically, I mean physically looking, American chestnut trees, but with the resistant, the resistance of their Asian cousin, potentially could save the race the, or the species. This was also, I believe, done, and we talked about this in episode 35, the extinction, uh, was done with peregrine falcons. Yep. And uh, island tortoises. Yeah. Breeding different populations with each other to help kickstart uh, a renewed population. And speaking of de-extinction, there's been talk of trying to do it with the, the white rhinos. Since uh, one of the subspecies of white rhino has recently been lost, mm -hmm. there's been talk of using saved genetic material to fertilize the remaining subspecies population. I can't remember if it's which northern or, or southern, which one it was. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was the northern that went extinct, but I'm not positive. But 
very much what we hear talk about with the mammoth, but with an animal that is still around today and was still around very recently, could be that potential interbreeding could bring back, maybe, there's a lot of ethical issues and discussion to be had there, but could bring back an animal that was lost within the decade. Yeah. And then you go going back to our first story, the Cuban crocodile situation. Is this, are we witnessing American crocodiles reabsorbing the Cuban crocodile? And are we losing the Cuban crocodile through this interbreeding? Or are the animals, by breeding these two populations, perpetuating the Cuban crocodile and saving this kind of crocodile, if not the exact genetics, on this island? Right. Are they going to merge into one species and thus lose that diversity, potentially? Or is the injection of genetic material going to give rise to a slightly altered Cuban crocodile that can persist? Yes. There's lots of examples of this. There's tons of times where animals are introduced and rare or threatened animals, like the Cuban crocodile situation, are in great danger of being absorbed. There's actually an example with anatine ducks, which are a lot of ducks you recognize, like mallards, were released in other countries and began to hybridize with a long list. The American black duck, the Florida model duck, the Hawaiian duck, and the gray duck in various areas of North America and obviously Hawaii. And even in New Zealand, these ducks were more endangered and now the mallard has the potential to absorb them into a new, slightly genetically different mallard population. In Europe, American ruddy ducks became invasive and spread to the mainland and started breeding with endangered white-headed ducks. And there's actually a culling to wipe out ruddy ducks because they were so worried about it absorbing this very small, fragile population. So like hybridization can change the game, the playing field really quick when it comes to protecting certain species, because what happens when the species you were protecting is no longer the species you were protecting? Yes. <laughs> it's... It can also cause confusion, like the case with the red wolf. Yes, that is that is another one of those examples. Where you have that where it's, okay, what do we do? All right, first question, is this even a real thing? Yep. Is this an actual distinct population? Is it just hybridization? And where do we draw that line? And when do we take action? That can get complicated. And it's it's the red wolf for everyone is a endangered grouping of wolves that many think is actually just a hybridization between the gray wolf and coyotes. Mm -hmm. Shows a lot of the similar signs. And if it's that case, well, then is that just a weird thing that's there? And if they don't, if they go away, they'll probably just pop up again when they bump into each other. Or is that something... It's, it's the same idea with animals that seem to be on their way out anyway. Conservation questions are very hard on when do you step in and when do you not. And hybrids make, can make it very tricky, even if they can offer ways out sometimes. This is by no means the synopsis of hybridization, but we are out of time. Indeed we are. If, as usual, there was any part of this that you would like to hear more on, please let us know. If there was a hybrid that you wanted to hear us talk about that we didn't get to, there were ones that personally were on my list to talk about that I didn't get to just because we 
don't have enough time to cover every cool, weird hybrid, please let us know. And we'll be happy to hear your requests, your questions, and prompts for revisiting. We haven't yet revisited a topic, but we always would be willing to, and this is one that's rich for it. Otherwise, we will be releasing our next episode in a fortnight, as is tradition. Until then, keep your eyes out for the bonus things like Spotlight coming up and hopefully fairly soon our SciFest episode and then fairly soon after that, Spookulative Evolution. <laughs> and whatever else comes up. And whatever else we decide to pile on our plates. <laughs> and keep an eye out for the blog post. Yep, we will be putting always. a blog post. Lots of links, lots of pictures. There's lots of weird hybrids for you to see, so we'll put out lots of neat pictures of that. Thanks again, Darcy, for the episode requests and suggestion. It's a lot of fun. I learned a ton researching this Yeah, this, this one, one. Was, this was a lot of fun to talk about. And thank you to our new patrons, yes, Brooke and, and Julie. And even to our old patrons. And to our old patrons. Once again. And to all of our listeners. Our podcast is brought to you by patrons like those mentioned in the past and those unmentioned. And if you're ever interested to go check us out on Patreon. We do upload bonus material, bonus extra recordings uh, about our our musings and thoughts about the episode and other things. So feel free to go take a look at that and sign up if you would like to hear that. I think that's about it. I think that's all the stuff. All right. We did it. Good episode. 44. Next episode is 45, which means we'll be talking about extinction. Yeah. I'm not taking requests anymore. The topic has been chosen. (laughs) The vault has been closed. It's it's too late. The ballots closed. You have to deal with just whatever wait. extinction you have next. It's it's until gonna everything's be dead. Pretty great. I'm looking forward to this one. <laughs> Goodbye for now, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.